0: Uh, I just, before we get started, we're going to be talking about how we know the Bible is true, but I just really want to uh, remember Lily Goucher because I was getting a little emotional, actually, during praise and worship because I was thinking what a perfect topic to speak on today on the same day as her um, celebration of life service. She was my biggest cheerleader, one of them. All of you are my uh, cheerleaders, but she was one of my biggest cheerleaders here in the church, and she would always text me and encourage me, and I know she'd be so excited to hear this message today, and I just got a vision of her in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Cheering me on and, and and just being able to listen to everything that we're saying here today and we're able to learn, so I just wanted to... Uh, Remember her um, on this day, and I hope all of you will be able to come back today at five for her celebration of life service. Um, but anyway, thanks. So today we're going to be talking about how we know the Bible is true. And this is, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the year that our theme for this year is biblical worldview. We want to be developing a biblical worldview, and this is one of the most important aspects of a biblical worldview, is knowing how we know that the Bible is true. So I wanted to, and I want to thank my dad for allowing me to come and preach today. Um, I do have my preaching license now from the Foursquare Denomination, which I didn't have five or six years ago when I first started, but uh, it's good to be back. Um, So if you like this uh, topic, you know, after today, I wanted to point you to a couple of resources where you can get more information. A lot of people probably know The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. You can really dive in deep on this topic uh, with this book if you would like to after the sermon today. Um, Then also, if this is a little bit too much for you to read... They're also, they have these Case for Christ answer booklets. We're actually now uh, including these in our first-time visitor packets for everybody, and it's about 45 pages. It's a little bit of a shorter read, so if you want to learn more, we do actually have some in the back room, so you can let my mom, my dad, or me, or someone, uh, one of the greeters know, and, and they can definitely get a copy of this for you if you'd like to read it on your own. Um, But anyway, so with me up here, I mean, everybody is probably thinking to themselves, there's probably one big question in everybody's minds, with Pastor Chuck not up here today, are we still going to have a skit for the sermon this Sunday? Like, I mean, I think that's the big question, right, that we need answered. Um, So unfortunately today, no, we're not going to have a skit, Um, but we are going to laugh a little today, and we are going to learn a little, all right? Hopefully we won't cry a little, okay? Hopefully this sermon won't make you cry a little, but we are going to renew our commitment to following the Word of God in our lives. So now some of you may be saying to yourselves, why are we wasting our time talking about this topic, why the Bible is true? We're all here in church today, right? So duh, it's pretty safe to say that everyone here probably believes that the Bible is true. Well, we are learning about this topic for a couple of reasons. Number one, surveys suggest that not everyone in church actually believes that the Bible is 100% true. Uh, In fact, many people make decisions about the authenticity of Scripture, you know, when they're maybe in middle school or high school or college or shortly thereafter, um, and then they stop going to church for a while. And then, you know, they may come back because they say, hey, you know what? I've got a family now. I've got kids. I want to figure out a way to teach them right from wrong. And so they say, let's start going back to church, or they like the community aspects or the social aspects of church. But they haven't had an opportunity to reevaluate the decisions that they came to in middle school or high school or college about the reliability of Scripture, but the reality is, we have enough information about the truth of the Bible to fill entire libraries, multiple libraries of information. When you look at the archaeology and the litter and the uh, literature, I mean, they, it, is, it is enormous. It is overwhelming. And in some ways, that's part of the problem. It's so overwhelming. How do you get your head wrapped around it unless you're some kind of PhD, right? So um, today's message is just meant as a starting point, and there's no way to present everything in just an hour. So at the end, if you say, hey, you know, I need more information, I'm not fully convinced, go ahead, look at these resources, because when you look at the cumulative evidence out there, it, that's, where the, uh, that's how it's convincing. It's not just one fact or one piece of information, it's when you look at it in its totality, there is no way but to believe that the Bible is true. I I mean, and this bears out when you listen to atheist uh, scholars who go out and start studying this topic. Time after time after time again, they get converted to Christianity. They go out trying to prove that the Bible is false, and then they come out a Christian. You know, someone like Lee Strobel. There's countless people where this has been the case. Um, the second reason why we want to learn about this topic is that Christians need to be able to understand and defend why we know the Bible is true. Um, whether we are raising our kids or talking to a co-worker, we need to be able to give a reason why we believe in the Bible. And, uh, you know, certain things like, well, it, it, it just... Uh, My personal experience, you know, demonstrates that the word is true. Not that that is a bad response, but your personal experience doesn't necessarily match up with the person next to you. So we need to have some objective information in, in order to be able to share with others. So 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16 says, and do we have that up on the screen? Yep, okay, there it is. Always be ready to give a defense To everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear or gentleness and reverence, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Now, let me ask you there's a lot of people out there trying to defame Christians, right? There's a lot of people out there trying to claim that we're the evildoers, right? in our culture today? Well, this is the answer. This is the way we provide a response. And in so doing, um, by our good conduct in Christ, they may be ashamed. It's a way to turn the tables on those who are trying to come after us and trying to say that we're shameful and we're evildoers. So when believers not only know the Bible is true, but why the Bible is true, it allows us to more easily fulfill the great commission of making disciples of all nations. Now, I heard this example um, about knowing that the Bible is true. If you had uh, the cure for cancer, right, would you sit at home and just kind of like, I don't know, like put it in a little container or or put it in a vase and just kind of keep it on a piece of paper and leave it in there? Or would you just kind of take it out and only read it for yourself? No, if you had the cure for cancer... Uh, The disease that was ailing all of humanity and causing people, uh, you know, basically uh, for their lives to be terminated prematurely, to to end prematurely, you would go out and you'd tell everybody, right? You would be out on the street, you would be like on the street corner, you would be like shouting it in the news, you would be like in, the, in college and in academic circles telling them, hey, you need to listen to this cure. You'd be writing in journals. I mean, it would be an all out uh, effort to get to as many people as possible, right? To save them, right? Well, that's the case with Scripture. The Bible, the gospel is the cure. For the disease that's ailing all of humanity, and that is sin. That is the sin, the bondage of sin and death. It is a disease that um, afflicts all of us, and Jesus and the Word of God in the New Testament is the cure for it. And oftentimes, you know, as Christians, as believers, we do not treat the Word of God like it's the cure for cancer we treat the word of god like it's a preference like i prefer this coffee over that coffee or i prefer i prefer this movie over that movie or i prefer this car over that car and I think part of the problem is, is that we don't steep ourselves in the evidence for why we know that the Bible is true. We believe it for ourselves, but because we don't steep ourselves in the evidence, we fall into the trap of thinking that it the our, our Christianity, our religion, is just a mere preference. Like, it doesn't matter. You can take Muslim, you can take Christianity, you can be Mormon, You know. you can be Buddhist, but the reality is, is those other religions do not have the force of truth behind them, the evidence that we have for Christianity. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, But suffice it to say, I provide this example because at the end of the day, at the end of this sermon, I really want you to either be so convinced that you want to go out and spread the gospel with others and be equipped and how to do that, or I want to inspire you to go out and study more so that way you can uh, have that confidence to go out and share the gospel with your friends and family members and loved ones who do not know the Lord and who are literally dying as a result of sin because they do not have Jesus. They are dying a slow death as a result of sin and bondage without even knowing it. Um, so let's get into the the information about why we know the Bible is true. Well, first and foremost, the Bible itself claims to be true, all right? This we know. I want to look at a couple of scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, let's have, okay, good. Anthony's doing great today. Oh my gosh. I don't even have to look back, all right? Anthony, you're doing a great job. All scripture is given by inspiration All scripture is given by inspiration of God um, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I was in youth group one time with the youth, right? And um, they were having a hard time memorizing this scripture, right? Because it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other... other. Uh, versions say all scripture is God-breathed, right? So I want to give you just a little quick um, uh, reminder of how to remember this scripture, right? All scripture is God-breathed, not all scripture is dog-breathed, okay? All scripture is God-breathed, and the reason why I say that is it's kind of funny, but also it, it kind of notes like scripture is from God. It's from our creator, right? It's not from creation, So, but it's just a a really easy way to remember. And the youth, it actually helped them. They're like, yeah, all scripture is God-breathed, not dog-breathed. But anyway, so 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given to us by God, and it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and for righteousness so that we will be equipped for every good work. Isaiah 55:11 also says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So obviously it's truth, all right? It produces fruit. It's seed that produces fruit. Now, One thing I want to tell all the parents out there and, you know, friends and family, anyone who's trying to influence the next generation. This Isaiah 55 11 passage is very instructive because basically what it's saying is you can't produce fruit unless you plant seed, right? And the way you plant seed is you teach the word of God. You say it. You speak it with your mouth. You teach the principles of it. Everywhere you go, when you lie down, when you're eating, when you go to the movie theater, when you come out of the movie theater, when you're driving in the car, when you're driving in the school, you need, to be quote, you need to know Scripture, and you need to be quoting it to them and telling them what it says all the time. Because also, the measure in which you sow, that measure in which you shall reap, all right? If you tell them one Scripture once a week, with that measure, you're going to reap that fruit with your kids or with whoever you're trying to influence in the next generation. But if you quote scripture all the time, if they say, stop it, I've had enough, I can't take it anymore, that's the measure eventually you're going to reap with. So just, I just want to point that scripture out. You know, Not only does Isaiah 55:11 tell us that the word of God is true, but it also is really instructive in how we should train our children up in the ways of the Lord. Okay, so what is a good argument for an atheist who does not believe that the Bible is true and who does not believe that God exists? Um, Can we just say, oh, well, the Bible says so. The Bible says it's truth. So, Mr. Atheist, Ms. Atheist, Joe Machado, can you please just believe that the Bible is true? For those of you who don't know, Joe Machado played our atheist attorney last year, um, uh, for Easter, for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, so I, I'm not, there's no, don't, Joe Machado is like as strong of a Christian as any of us here, so um, that was just a bit of a joke, um, <laughs> but would citing scripture alone be sufficient in terms of convincing our kids who are being swayed by the culture? It's like when your son or daughter asks why they have to obey. I've done this a lot with my parents, <laughs> Why? 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 You know, I was like an attorney. I was a little attorney in training. Okay. Um, After a while, they just said, because I said so. All right. (laughs) So, I mean, sometimes that works, you know, sometimes it doesn't. So, but we want each and every single one of our kids to grow up knowing the truth of the gospel. So we have to provide them with more than just the Bible says it's true or because I said so. What is going to happen to our kids when they leave the comfort of their Christian homes or our church and they go off to college? Or even if they don't go to college, they get influenced by social media, they have a job, they have friends who aren't Christians, uh, you know, they're watching movies, um, what, what are they going to do? Um, if they go to college or if they work somewhere, maybe they have an atheist professor or co-worker who day after day after day after day makes arguments for why the Bible is not true. That will be exceptionally challenging, would it not? Of students who say they believe in Jesus, after the university years, between 40 and 59% have disengaged the church, and many of those have left the faith entirely. You know what? That was me when I was in college, when I went to Berkeley, I had professors saying the Bible wasn't true. Class after class after class after class. Um, But thankfully, I had Christian teachers in high school who prepared me with why we know the Bible is true. Um, I will also say one thing that really helped me with the new Jesus Revolution picture. Chuck Smith helped me tremendously after I graduated college. I used to listen to his uh, word for the day every morning on my way uh, to, to work, and he just, you know, he used to work with hippies and I went to a hippie school and he just laid it out in a way that I was like, wow, you're right. Like the beauty of creation, there's no way that God couldn't exist. Like the Bible's true. All right, Chuck Smith, I'm ready. I, I give my life to the Lord from now until eternity. Um, so, but our kids may not have the luxury of a Christian school with teachers who can prepare them on how we know the Bible's true. And so we as parents... As pastors, as teachers, as friends here at New Heart, we have to help them develop a strong enough belief in the Bible to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy when they leave home. This information that I'll be teaching today can also help us witness to other people, because some people have genuine intellectual barriers and want to know if there's evidence supporting Christianity. There are some that may also have emotional or relational reasons for not believing, but only God can work on their hearts and help them to see the truth. So for those people, we just really need to be praying for them. Okay, so here we go. Here's the meat of the sermon, all right? We're going to be talking about three different tests of how we know the Bible is true. When we look at the, and don't worry, I'm going to define this word, so just don't get too overwhelmed when I say this, all right? When we look at the historicity of the Bible, it's clear that we have very good reason to believe the Bible is true. You may be asking yourself, what is historicity? Well, basically, it's the academic study of determining the accuracy of ancient books. We are going to talk about three tests today to show you how we know the Bible's true. The three tests are, and they're all C's, okay? So it's easy to remember. The composition test. The companion test and the corroboration test. And really, like I said, there's really a tsunami of evidence that the Bible is true. If only Christians would take the time to look for the information um, and be able to share it with others. So, okay, our first test, the composition test. All right, we got, there it is. Okay, I got these really nice slides to help you remember um, so that way uh, you don't fall asleep and, and hopefully it'll trigger memory. You know, visual memory and learning is really important. Um, So the composition test, we're asking ourselves, does the author of a document claim to care about truth? Like, okay, for example, does anyone, if you're reading like a book or something, what's like one really key indicator that what you're reading is not true? Can anyone, I want to get some audience participation. Can anyone think? Really common phrase. If you can't think of it, it's okay, but I just want to give you guys a shot. Okay, fiction, yeah, but there's a phrase that starts at a lot of different stories. Once upon a time. Upon a time. That's very good. You guys are very smart students today. <laughs> Give yourself a round of applause. Okay, I can think of another example, all right? And maybe this will speak to some of you, all right? Has anyone heard of the phrase? Wait, let me get it. Wait, I want to say it right. Okay, oh, yeah. okay, okay a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, maybe some of you would like to think that's true, but the reality is it's not, okay? It's a fiction. So, we can determine based on what a document says about itself whether or not we can believe it to be true, right? And, um, you'd really be surprised at the number of times the authors of the New Testament went out of their way to indicate that they cared about truth. So Luke, for example, was a doctor by profession. And this is what he says at the beginning of the book of Luke. Luke 1, 1 through 4 says, "...many have taken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us." just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. Now, I bolded that. I, I highlighted that. It's in all caps. Who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated, again, very important phrase, everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account so that you may know, and again, you may know the certainty, all caps underlined, of the things that you have been taught. This is basically an ancient way of saying that what I'm about to tell you is true, okay? I have interviewed eyewitnesses, I've carefully investigated, and I want to give you certainty that what I'm writing in this book is true. Now, I, I want to say something this is different than saying based on a true story all right. My dad loves it when we watch movies based on a true story. Oftentimes our family we have our little Sunday night movie nights, all right you know we've spent time we've given ourselves we've loved everyone at the church you know we're kind of uh You know We're a little tired, we want to take a nap, usually we'll take a nap sometimes, and then we do movie night, right? And sometimes it takes us a while to find the right movie, right? And when I see that phrase based on a true story, I'm like, I got it, okay? My dad's going to say yes to this, because oftentimes my dad says no to most of them. If it doesn't have... At least three out of four stars on Pure Flix or four out of five stars on Amazon Prime, he's going to say no. But if it says based on a true story, I know I've probably got him to say yes. Well, anyway, he loves researching. Well, first of all, he'll check. Once the movie starts, he'll check and see what the end of the movie is. And he's like, do you guys want to know the end of the movie? And my mom is like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, absolutely not, okay? I do not want to know the end of the movie. <laughs> then he starts researching the characters, you know, like the actual true-to-life characters, right? And he finds out all about them. And then he starts saying, either before the movie's over or usually afterwards, um, because I'm like, I don't want to know the end. He's like, you know, that character didn't actually exist. Or it didn't really end that way or it didn't happen that way. And the reason being is because a movie that says based on a true story is not the truth, all right? They change it to to give it more entertainment value. So that's not what Luke is saying here. He's not saying that his book is based on a true story. He's saying this is the truth, all right? This is what actually happened, right? Um, And so I guess what I want to say is when we look at the Word of God, we need to look at it differently than we would a movie based on a true story. We may get excited about a movie, you know, that's based on a true story, you know, for a few hours afterwards or a few days. We may tell a coworker or a neighbor about it. Hey, that was a really good movie. You should go and watch it. But then it kind of dies off and we forget about the movie and it doesn't really impact our life or change the way we do anything or we're not constantly talking about the movie, you know, like every single day. You know, and we kind of get disinterested in the movie after a while. Well, we should allow the Word of God, and based on what we learned today, to really infiltrate every aspect of our lives, and we should just be spreading it continually to all around us. We shouldn't grow disinterested with the Word of God and the fact that it is the truth, because it is really what actually happened, and um, it has an impact on all of us, on all of our souls, um, and, and where we end up in eternity. Okay, 2 Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow carefully invented stories myths when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we can see that Luke was not an eyewitness, but he interviewed eyewitnesses. He investigated. And Peter said that we saw ourselves the evidence of his majesty. So Peter himself was an eyewitness. First John 1.1 1, 1 says, what from the beginning, what we have heard, you know, capitalized, underlined, what we have looked at, capitalized, underlines, and touched with our hands. These are three different senses, right? Three different senses in which uh, John was an eyewitness. John is basically saying here that he has personal knowledge of what he is about to tell us. Uh, personal knowledge is really important. I'm a lawyer, okay? Has anyone heard of the term legal standing? Yes, right? Basically, in court, if you want to be a a witness, right? If you want to give testimony in a case, you have to have personal knowledge. It is a prerequisite. You can get completely struck and you cannot testify if you do not have personal knowledge, It's one of the ways, uh, the evidentiary protections to make sure that what's being said in court is accurate. Um, I'll just, I have a side story. Um, I was in arbitration this past week. Arbitration, it's kind of like trial, but it's like more, more private and you pay a private arbitrator in order to make a decision for you instead of going to the courts. Well, I was a little nervous. Okay, because I was supposed to do cross examination for the first time in an adversarial proceeding. So I was a little nervous, right? So in Bible study a week or two ago, I was like, I was like, you know, I need prayer, okay? I'm gonna do my cross. This is like the hardest part of being an attorney, you know? God, you know, like, let's pray that God helps me, right? Um, in this part. And I have to tell you, I really felt like God was guiding me through that whole process because I I was just shutting down opposing counsel left and right. I mean, he didn't know what hit him. I mean, I was like, this is miraculous. So anyway, I just want to say that because prayer really works and it really works even in the legal profession. But anyway, I also said that because at one point in the arbitration, I had to object because they brought this witness in, right? And we were looking at this document, and I'm like, your honor, objection, no personal knowledge, right? This witness has no personal knowledge of this document, right? And of course, she upholds, uh, she upholds the objection as to the document. Um, but the point being is that John here is saying with this verse, with these three things, he's saying. I have the personal knowledge or legal standing to tell you about all these things I'm about to tell you about in his book. Um, okay, so anyway, that is the composition test, right? So the, the Gospels, the New Testament, easily pass the composition test because they claim to be telling us about truth. Now, human nature is that when we make stuff up, we make ourselves look really good, right? Right? So I have a story about with my dad, right? Now, this may surprise some of you, right? My dad and I don't always agree on stuff. I mean, I know you think we're both pastors, so we're both perfect. We both talk to each other, you know, with a cadence, you know, like some sort of, you know, beautiful cadence, you know, as we go back and forth in the home, uh, but sometimes we have discussions and, and sometimes we don't agree or see eye to eye on, on how, you know, what we want to present at church or how we want to do things um, around the church. And so there's this one time, it was before I became a pastor, um, and, and so I was talking to my dad. I said, hey, dad, I really think we should start incorporating, you know, this particular topic more uh, like in service in the sanctuary with the youth. I think it'd be really important, you know. My dad's like, eh, I, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, that's kind of not how the way we've done things in the past. Um, so, you know, we kind of, we couldn't really get to a compromise or see eye to eye on that. And so my dad was like, hey, I've got an idea, right? He said, I've got an area pastor's lunch next week, Right how about I go, I tell them about, you know, what we've been discussing, get their thoughts, bring it back, you know, and and then, you know, we'll kind of go with whatever they say, right? And I was like, okay, that's fine, but if you know something about my dad, before he was a pastor, he was a salesman. (laughs) So he's a little bit of a recovering salesman, Right? All right, and so my dad has a way of presenting things, uh, you know, uh, you know, in the light that most best suits him, and he can get a reaction that he wants out of someone. So I was like, okay, you can go to that pastor's uh, luncheon, but you gotta present the arguments objectively. You know, present your side. And then, you know, present my side objectively and see what they have to say, right? So my dad goes to the area pastor's luncheon, right? And tells them what I had said, you know, tells them that I said he's got to present it objectively. They cracked up so hard. They laughed so hard. I was like their hero, okay? They thought it was so great that I knew my dad well enough and was able to call him out and be like, hey... You know, you got to present things objectively, you know, don't like slip things in there with your salesman routine. But anyway, um, suffice it to say, he talked to them, he came back, and they were all on his side, all right? I wonder, gee, I wonder why. But anyway, like I said, human nature is that when we make stuff up, we make ourselves look really good. So historians look at an ancient book, and when they notice that the writer includes embarrassing or disparaging material, the critical historian says, wow, this writer has composed this book with care about truth. Now, it definitely when you do that, it enhances the credibility of the writing. But, you know, I will say it's not necessarily dispositive because some really good liars and criminals out there have kind of figured out the formula and will selectively include embarrassing material to appear more convincing. But I do want to go through this with you in, in terms of the New Testament. Um, so it does show us, however, that the gospel writers cared about describing the truth of what had actually happened. So the New Testament and the gospels include a lot of embarrassing material. So let's see. Oh, Anthony. Oh, good. Anthony's on, on track. Okay, so for the first thing, Peter denies Jesus three times in Mark 14, 70. Now, why would the lead of the disciples or lead of the apostles, why would they include that he denied Jesus three times? Doesn't look very good, does it? In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Why would the apostles make up this story where Jesus called the lead of the apostles Satan? It makes no sense. Unless they, are act- they actually care about truth and they care about uh, describing what actually happened um, in a truthful way. Number three, the disciples fall asleep in Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Three times Jesus says, stay awake, be alert, because the time is near. And they fell asleep anyway. Doesn't make them look really good, does it? Number four, the disciples don't understand the parable of the sower in Mark 4, 1 through 12. I'll tell you, right, if my dad is up here at the pulpit and he's giving a sermon and he asks a question, right, and I don't know the answer to the question, I'm not going to raise my hand and say something, right? I'm going to stay quiet, right? (laughs) Um, It's like, why would they put that in a, right, why would they write that down in a book that they couldn't understand the parable of the sower, Uh, Lastly, number five in John 20, women discover the empty tomb. Uh, A woman's testimony in that culture was not considered as significant as a man's testimony because it was a patriarchal culture and women were not educated like men. If the apostles were inventing a story about the death, burial, and resurrection of a man named Jesus, why would they use women as the first witnesses unless it was actually true? This all shows me that the writers of the New Testament cared more about truth than the impression the world had about their character. That's because they had character and they cared about truth. But what convinced me most about the veracity of the New Testament accounts is what it cost the apostles to believe in a risen Jesus. So I have a list here of what happened to all the apostles. Peter was crucified. So was Andrew and Philip. Bartholomew was flayed. Now, some of you may say, "Well, what's flayed?" Right? It sounds like we're, you know, grilling a filet mignon or something. Uh, flayed is another term for being skinned to death. Okay, being skinned to death. Um, James the Greater was beheaded. Matthew was killed with a sword. Matthias was stoned to death. Thomas was stabbed with spears. John died after exile, Luke hanged, James the just thrown and beaten, Mark dragged to death by a horse, and Paul beheaded. So you can see these people really believed what they were saying. They believed it so much that they they died for what they believed. These men had the character to put their lives on the line because they believed in the depths of their heart that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Okay. Okay. That's the end of the composition test, all right? Next test, the companion test. And in this, que- in this test, we ask, have the documents reached just accurately? This is why I wanted you to uh, watch that video, so hopefully it would sink in because we have a lot of of information to share, and I will tell you, I kind of presented this to my mom and dad last night, and there was a certain part in here where I started talking about the Iliad, and my mom was like, whoa, you lost me there when you started talking about the Iliad. So hopefully I'll be able to explain that a little bit more, um, so that way I don't lose, uh, lose anyone. So if anyone has ever played a game of telephone, you know that a message can be changed or distorted a whole lot when passed from one person to the next. This is one reason we need to be careful in in church about gossip or rumors because it's hurtful and the information being passed um, around can be completely wrong. Also, it says in scripture, you know, gossip is a sin. But historians ask about the accuracy of an ancient book and have ways of determining if a book has been passed down accurately. They really ask three questions. Today we're going to be asking two. I am going to address the third one at the end. Um, But today we're going to be really focusing on two. Uh, The first question is, what is the time gap between the original copies and the copies we have today? Now, remember, the Bible we have is not from the original uh, copies that were written, uh, you know, around the time of Jesus' time or, or shortly thereafter. What we have are basically copies of those originals, um, and we've discerned what the originals say through those copies. So what we want, we, we want a small gap in time, right? Not a large gap in time between the originals and the copies. Because um, with a smaller gap, there's less room for intentional or unintentional error. So the further removed uh, from us that the or, or the further removed from the original that the the copy is, um, the more likely or um, yeah the more likely it is that we've lost information. Okay, so we're going to go through some very famous, popular ancient writers that no one really disputes. Okay, no one really says, oh that guy, <laughs> he didn't really exist or his writings aren't true. Um, so the first person is Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, and oftentimes Josephus, a lot of what Josephus writes about confirms the life of Jesus. Um, but the the gap in time between the original writings of Josephus and the copies that we have is 800 years. Uh, Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek historian, uh, the gap was 1,500 years. I think, do we have a... Okay, good. Yeah, we have kind of a... Um, a, a diagram for you to look at. Caesar was a thousand, Plato was twelve hundred, Aristotle was fourteen hundred. Now, the operative question, like I know it's all burning in your mind, what's the gap for the New Testament, right? What's the gap for the New Testament? It's about forty years, you know, thirty five to forty years. And this is unprecedented, historically speaking. Daniel B. Wallace, uh, a biblical scholar, said, We have more and earlier manuscript evidence of the personhood of Jesus Christ than anyone else in the ancient world, including Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great. Now, there's not a lot of people doubting the existence of Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or whether or not their writings are true. Now, why why is that? Why do you think that is? That's right, Wendell, they're scared. Because it does not matter for the state of your soul who Alexander the Great is. Because it matters so much who Jesus is, people apply a double standard to Jesus' life in the Bible that they don't apply to figures like Caesar and Alexander the Great. Okay, the next question. We can move to the next slide, Anthony. How many manuscripts do we have? Do have, uh, Do we want more or do we want less? Well, the more we have... More, you know, the more we have, the easier it is to determine um, you know, whether or not we can better construct the original. But the problem with that is the more we have, it also means uh, that we'll have way more inconsistencies or differences. So a manuscript is a handwritten copy before the printing press. So many of the youth in the room may not even know what a printing press is. Well, it's basically a precursor to the printer, right? Or actually, these days, it's probably a precursor to the camera feature on your iPhone, because we don't even print stuff anymore. We just take a picture of it and send it to someone, or save it on our phone and read it later. All right? So, anyway, um, so when we look at different figures, Caesar, his writings, we have more or less 10 manuscripts of Julius Caesar's writings. Plato, we have about seven manuscripts. This is going to, like, blow your mind. The New Testament, we have over 24,000 manuscripts. I think it said 5,700 on that video, but that was just in Greek alone, okay? This is, like, all languages put together. Um, Christians with Jewish roots learn to revere the Scriptures. Now, here we come to the Iliad, okay? Okay. Who knows the Iliad and the Odyssey? Have you ever heard of it? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Okay, it's, these are books of Greek mythology written by a man by the name of Homer. He was kind of in the book, right? The Iliad is probably one of the most popular ancient books apart from the Bible. So it's like second. Like that's, you hear it quoted all the time. In college, like you read it. I read it in high school expert, excerpts, in, excerpts in high school. No, no... Like academic professor anywhere in the country doubts that Homer existed and that we have accurate copies of the Iliad and the Odyssey. Well, the number of uh, copies of the Iliad that we have, it's about 1900 uh, versus over 24,000 of the New Testament. So basically, the new, for the New Testament, we have 15 times as many um, Uh, of the New Testament than we do of the Iliad. And the Iliad was kind of like the Bible. It was Greek mythology. It was kind of like the Bible in ancient Greek culture. Uh, And so if you look at the average classical writer who wrote around the New Testament um, and you look at everything that was composed within a few hundred years of when the New Testament was, was written, if you stack up, and you heard this in the video, if you stack up all those manuscripts together, they'd be about four feet high. You could sit them on a desk, right? But if you um, put together all the manuscripts of the New Testament that we have, over 24,000, they'd stack up over a mile high, right? So we've got a lot of copies of the New Testament, right? But then Bart Ehrman, who was on that video, he's like a critical scholar of of the New Testament and, and of the Bible, He basically said, there are more variation among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So this is our our third question, kind of. It's like, what what are the variations? How many are there? You know, does it affect the meaning? Um, And so uh, a lot of people will, like, kind of get scared when they hear the fact that there are between 300,000 and 400,000 differences or variations within all those 24,000 manuscripts. Uh, And again, that's a lot of manuscripts, so you would expect more differences, right? Because there's more of them than there are all the other uh, copies. But the thing is, 75% of those differences have to do with spelling, right? Either you spell John differently with two N's instead of one, or like, for example, the British, you know, they spell honor with a U-H-O-N-O-U-R instead of H-O-N-O-R, um, then also some of them would use the word Jesus instead of he, you know. But that doesn't really take away meaning from the Scripture. It adds to it. So a lot of these, meaning, a lot of these differences that we see have absolutely no, um, no substantive difference in terms of uh, the meaning of Scripture. And there are only two passages, more than two verses in length, uh, in the New Testament uh, that we're not sure if they're in the original and the first passage is Mark 16, 9 through 20. And in this passage, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, uh, two of the disciples, and we find the Great Commission. But the issue is, the Great Commission is repeated. Not in, not exactly, not, it's not all the words um, at the end of Mark, um, but in Matthew 28, 18, uh, we also get another version of the Great Commission. So we know that's repeated in Matthew, so that was definitely in the original. And then... The second passage is John 7:53 through8:11, and this is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, but no one's hiding it. It's not like no one's told you, because I'm telling you, I've looked in the Bible, I've actually looked on the little Bible app on your phone. If you go to these passages, it very clearly says these passages were not quite sure if they were in the original. Um, and scholars are still working on it. All right, they haven't. They're not done. Right? We we may get word uh, sooner or later about whether or not they think it was in the original. But the reality is, those passages, especially because the Great Commission is copied in Matthew 28, they don't have any impact on the core doctrines of Christianity. Um, so you find, like, atheists and critical scholars want to say, there's all these differences. How can we believe the Bible? It's crazy. Well, let's really reduce it to what those differences actually are. And you realize it doesn't have any impact on the essential doctrines of Christianity. Like like I said, less than 1% of the New Testament has anything to do, less than 1% of the variation has anything to do with meaning. And again, none of it has anything to do with essential doctrines. And this is quite remarkable considering how many we have. Remember? We have 15 times as many as the Iliad, but yet we have like less than 1% of of actual difference between all those manuscripts. It kinda I love this fact because it really makes me feel like the hand of God was had to have been guiding all those people making those copies. Because who in their right mind would have thought that humans alone could have made so few mistakes, right? So, in in more detail, in comparison to other ancient works like the Iliad, the New Testament has about 0.5% in variation, while the Iliad has 5%, and most ancient works have 20% variation or more. So, the Iliad, I just want to break this down for you. The Iliad, we have 15 more times uh, the number of manuscripts of the Iliad, but the variation is 10 times less. That's huge, okay? That is, can only be described as miraculous. Okay, so there we go. That is, the, um, that is the companion test. I hope I've convinced you that what we have today is an accurate version of what was written down at or near the time of Jesus. The last test that we're going to be talking today... Um, is the corroboration test. Can we corroborate or confirm this story from writings outside the book, like archaeology or other ancient writings? For example, and this is what I was telling you about, other religions do not have the, um, cannot be corroborated in the way that Christianity and the Bible can be corroborated. For example, the Book of Mormon, there are no convincing extra-biblical pieces of archaeology or writing that tell us the stories in the Book of Mormon are true. In fact, there is a lot of evidence to the contrary. That's not the case for the New Testament. We consistently find archaeology accounts that support the biblical narrative. All right, so slide 58... Caesarea Maritima. So, there is this little, and by the way, this is not the original. This is like a replica of it, okay? But there is this little inscription that is very important. For years, the only evidence of Pontius Pilate existed was literary in nature. Some people hypothesized that Pilate was a fiction. Well, Pilate was the guy who presided over the trial of Jesus and ordered his crucifixion. So if Pilate didn't exist, that's kind of an important detail, right, For, for whether or not Christianity is true. Until scholars and archaeologists discovered this little limestone inscription that basically says at the time of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor at the time, there was a governor named Pontius Pilate and it was in the time and place that the bible described so pontius pilate was not fictional pontius pilate was a real historical figure and he had the exact position that the new testament records when jesus was condemned to death youth i just want to speak to you if you don't believe me you can search for pilate stone on wikipedia or youtube and you'll see that it's true now i just want to talk to the parents for a second sometimes It's unfortunate, but the next generation oftentimes views YouTube as more authoritative than any other source, okay? Um, I think that's unfortunate because anybody can upload anything to YouTube, all right? It's not always true. Thankfully, in this case, there are some really great Christian scholars out there, and to be honest with you, there are a lot of scholars who aren't even Christian who, like all these things that I'm saying... They will verify to, you don't have to be Christian in order to know that some of the stuff I'm telling you is true. Um, but anyway, but so thankfully there are scholars out there who have uploaded information on this pilot stone um, to, to show them that it is true. But I just want to tell parents, sometimes if you can find something on YouTube in order to show your kids um, or your youth, it goes a long way, right? Um, and then youth, I just want to tell you, you know, we want to get you to the point where you don't look at YouTube as being the authoritative source. We want to get you to the point where you think that the Bible is the authoritative source. All right? Yeah. Amen. Thank you for, that inter- for letting me uh, give that interlude. All right. So anyway, uh, Pilate Stone, it shows Pontius Pilate existed. It means Jesus' trial probably actually happened in, and his crucifixion actually probably happened as well. But let's go to Bethesda, all right, in John 5, 2. There was a pool in Bethesda that was called the Pool of Siloam. And Jesus came by and did a miracle with a lame man. Now, this is important, right, because... If Jesus actually did miracles, that is good evidence that he is the Son of God, right? Someone who wasn't the Son of God wouldn't be able to do miracles. Um, So the details of this story are really important um, in order to know whether or not um, Jesus really was divine and the Son of God. Well, for years, people doubted this place existed because the account describes five colonnades or porticos. So a portico is just like an extended, a colonnade is an extended portico, and basically a portico is a porch, all right? I think, like, I don't know if any of you have seen Gone with the Wind or, you know, or a southern home, it has like a wraparound porch, you know what I mean? It's kind of like that. They have these colonnades or porticos that will wrap around um, different structures. So where there was this pool, and, and and the colonnades would wrap around the structure. And so, here, let's read John 5, 2. Anthony, can you get that? Okay. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, uh, covered colonnades. So scholars dismiss this story because this is not how people would build in that day. It wasn't common to have five colonnades. It sounds kind of crazy. I'll show you some pictures, and you can see why. It's, it's kind of hard to believe that there would be five colonnades. Um, and so they didn't really believe that there would be five colonnades. Um, and they thought, well, John must have written from a later or legendary perspective and got his facts wrong, right? Well, let's go back, Anthony, to that picture you can kind of see it, but you can kind of count. You can count at least four, and then there's kind of a fifth in the foreground. It's a little cut off, but those were five colonnades, right? And so the point being is it must have been either an eyewitness or um, John spoke to an eyewitness who was actually there when it happened because the culture at that time didn't use five colonnades, so they must have been speaking from personal knowledge, um, and so uh, this is just a minor... Oh, um, oh yeah, okay. Um, sorry, I got a little uh, off track. But um, So we've actually found that, right? Um, and I wanted to show you what the pool might have looked like. I want to give you an image. Anthony, okay. Isn't that beautiful? Okay, so I just want to point out for you, there's only three colonnades. Can you see them? There's one on the left, one on the right... The one in the center might be considered a portico because it's smaller, but you know, it's essentially a porch. There's only three, but if you can imagine the pool of, Shilo, of Siloam or Bethesda, kind of looking like this, pool in the middle, and then they have the colonnades on the sides. And you could see five colonnades. That's crazy. How would you do that? You don't, you know, People don't build that way, but they did in Bethesda. So anyway, let's, let's move to the next point. I got one more point for you, um, and then we'll be done, all right? All right, so the last one, Anthony, if you can move the slide. Yeah. Oh, let's show them the colonnade. One more. Yeah, okay. So this is what it looks like in the colonnade. Okay, so next slide, Anthony. Now we're going to be talking about the crucified Jesus, right? So a lot of scholars critical of Christianity used to say, well, there is astonishing little evidence that the feet of a crucified person had ever been pierced by nails. Most of the evidence suggested that people were crucified with ropes. But we know that Jesus was crucified with nails because Thomas wanted to see the holes in his hands and his feet. Every crucified victim that they had found up to that point uh, was crucified with rope. Did the gospel writers get it wrong? I just want to let that sit there for a second. Um, In 1967, they found this in a tomb in Palestine, Palestine in the middle of the first century. So no, I just want to just disabuse you. This is not the heel bone of Jesus, okay? Like, if this was the heel bone of Jesus, I probably wouldn't have to be here preaching this sermon right now, all right? Um, You probably would have heard it on the news. Um, But anyway, uh, they found uh, this heel bone of a man who was crucified with with nails in his hands and his feet. The nail was lodged in there. It was a seven-inch nail that matched the description described in the gospel account. What is interesting is they broke the legs of the criminals in the gospel account that were crucified with Jesus. It may be, they don't know for sure, but scholars think that this may be the same guy who had his legs broken like the criminals with Jesus. So I'm going to read John 19.32 to show you where uh, the passage is in Scripture. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then, and then those of the other. Suffice it to say, archaeology shows that the Romans did cru- crucify people with nails. So we know that the gospel account is true. Like I said, this is just a minor sampling of all the archaeological proof. The New Testament is unique. We can trust that the New Testament writers got it right. This does not include... And I, we have like we're over, right? We're over time. I don't even have time to talk to you right now about all the prophecies from the Old Testament that come true. I mean, how does a prophecy written before the age of Christ come true with the coming of Christ with Christ with such perfection and with such certainty? And this also does not include the love and the life-changing power that we know can only come from the gospel, right? Okay, I just want you to remember. Remember when my dad prayed for Veronica um, Tarasas before service? We've all, she's been coming, coming to our church for over a year, right, walking with a cane. My dad prayed for her, and then right after my dad prayed for her, God healed her, and she hasn't walked with a cane since. And she came walking down the center aisle. How do you explain something like that? You know, how do you, how do you explain how we were all praying for my dad and how my dad was seeking the Lord when he had cancer? He had two forms of cancer, and he gets healed in total remission, and four years later, it still hasn't come back. How can you explain that other than through the gospel? So we really need to allow Scripture to get inside of our hearts, transform us, and allow it to transform others around us. If you're out there and you say, there's no hope for me, Or you say, I'm struggling in addiction. Or you you say, there is no forgiveness for me. Let me tell you, friends, there is all those things for you in the gospel and in the word of God and in the New Testament. And because of the confidence we have in the truth of what is said in the word of God, we can know that there is hope for all of us, that there is deliverance from addiction, and there is forgiveness for sins. So thank you all. I appreciate you all so much.